Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word, that we might know you, that we might know your will, and what you have done for us in the Lord Jesus. Help us to hear you now. Amen. Well, we are in the middle, or I guess towards the end, uh, of uh, the award season for films uh, for last year. Uh, In a day or so, you have the Oscars, the Academy Awards uh, coming up. We might ask, well, why, why do awards shows uh, exist? Why do they exist? Uh, perhaps self-indulgent Hollywood navel-gazing, perhaps. Uh, but on a less cynical note, perhaps it is important to, to recognise something for the claim and the status that it deserves. Uh, in Hollywood, uh, at the awards, we see that directing, those who have done a good job, an incredible job of directing or screenplays or sound design or costume-making... Uh, they get acknowledgement, and not only that, they get celebration. Their work is worthy of being held up, of being recognised. And in this passage, we have two mighty works of Jesus, don't we? I guess you have almost the miraculous equivalent of of classic movies. Uh, I mean, who doesn't know the tales of Jesus feeding the large crowds, of Jesus walking on water. I mean, that phrase, walking on water, that has even entered into our uh, language as an idiom, right? To do an impossible task is to, you know, they can walk on water. Um, But we need to remember that here, these are not just memorable tales, as the passage challenges us, but these are real people with real encounters with a person who is uh, beyond them. Uh, What Jesus does here is far more than about being entertained or uh, making you think differently about life, as a movie might make you do. We're going to see that these two mighty works reflect back on Jesus himself, who he really is and what he has come to do and how you and and I should respond to him in light of it. Uh, In this series of Matthew, we've been looking at getting Jesus right. Uh, In the crowds, we've seen confusion and speculation. Last week in Jesus' hometown, we saw a false familiarity um, with Jesus. We also saw uh, Herod, King Herod, who had something somewhat of an unhinged assessment of Jesus in light of his guilty conscience of what he had done to John the Baptist. People are making all sorts of assessments and speculation about Jesus then as they, as they do now. And so, as we see here and in the following sections, Jesus gives clarity, particularly to his disciples. These events are kind of framed through their perspective. Even the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew really puts us in the frame and mindset of the disciples, their perspective. And what we see is a growing uh, apprehension of who Jesus is. There's confusion, there's doubt, there's error, but they learn. And that's important uh, because they learn and come to see uh, one who is far more than they had uh, indeed expected or any person expected. And so we have uh, these two mighty acts, the first of which is the feeding of the 5,000, really more than 5,000 because that's only 5,000 men, you've got women and children too. But we have a feast here, don't we, uh, that is... You know, a far more has a far more humble menu uh, than what took place in um, Herod's feast last week. But you've got to say it's probably a bit more of a wholesome atmosphere uh, than what took place there. 
And we're told that hearing the news of John the Baptist's death, Jesus retreats and goes to a solitary place. We're not told why this is, perhaps to mourn uh, his, his distant relative and friend. Uh, perhaps he withdraws to not go into confrontation with Herod because it's not yet his time. But he goes with his disciples to go on, I guess, a planned, almost spiritual retreat to, to regroup, perhaps, to get ready for what's to come next. Uh, unfortunately, unlike, well, like modern celebrities, uh, Jesus' moves at this point are kind of tracked by everyone. It does not stay a secret. People somehow seem to see and know where he's going and they go around and a giant crowd builds up. And so you can imagine when Jesus uh, pulls in with a boat and his disciples to what's meant to be a solitary retreat. There's a big crowd there. You think, great. Um, People are drawn to Jesus, whether they understand him or not. They couldn't ignore him. And I think it would be pretty reasonable for Jesus to say, please go away. I'm closed uh, for business, just need some time. And yet, Jesus is not like, uh, I guess, the elite of the world who don't have time to, don't have time to spend with common riffraff. Uh, Jesus is a king who draws near to his people. And we see his compassion, don't we? And the word there for compassion is a visceral and a deep sense in his guts of sympathy and mercy. He truly cares for his people. And we see that, don't we? We see that it's not phony. He goes out of his way all day to heal them, uh, presumably to teach them, to seek to provide what they need. And of course, this goes on all day, as we're told, until night approaches. And the disciples say, all right, time to wrap up. People are hungry. Let them go so they can go to the villages and buy themselves something to, to eat. I mean, entirely, an entirely reasonable request. But Jesus, as we know, has set the stage uh, for what he is about to do. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. I mean, you can imagine the disciples. What? Hold on. Um, Something like the kids talk we had before. Because Jesus doesn't even say, I'll give them something. He says, you give them something to eat. And of course, they protest. Well, we have five loaves of bread and two fish. It's not happening, Jesus. And yet, Jesus um, takes, uh, as we see with verse 19, he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gives thanks and broke the loaves. They give them to him and he does this and then they start giving it out. And I have no idea what this would look like on the ground. Uh, The disciples keep handing bread out of their baskets and... They're just never empty. Who knows? But somehow, some way, the food is enough. We've got to ask, well, what is going on here? It's a nice story, isn't it? You know, feed a big crowd. That's, that's nice. But of course, there's more to it, isn't there? We can see uh, it and see what's going on, but there's more to it. We need to recognize and see it for what it indeed, what it is. Uh, I mean, if you were to have a device that detected Old Testament references, uh, it would be flashing and beeping and going off in all sorts of directions. Uh, Because, as we had that um, reading before from Exodus 16, uh, God feeding his people in remote places, that it occurs time and time again in the Old Testament. It occurs, as we saw in the Exodus, and wandering. Uh, It occurs with Elijah. God feeds him with ravens. It occurs uh, with Elisha, uh, his successor, who feeds A hundred men with 20 loaves, which this event is a bit of a callback to as well. But yet there's something unique and different about 
what's going on here? I mean, this makes Elisha's feeding of like 100 people look tiny. And even the manner which um, Moses you know, spoke of, he didn't perform any miracle, right? He just said, God's going to do this. But Jesus is the one providing, as if creating from nothing. The kind of action that is reserved for God himself. And you imagine the disciples are just totally bewildered as this is going on and taking place. And God has indeed promised that he would send a shepherd, a shepherd king in the mold of David to lead and provide for his people. And Jesus is intentionally, I think, taking um, and signaling that he is that king, at least with those who have the eyes uh, to see. But what is the result? People are, well, we're told they're satisfied, aren't they? No one's left wanting more. There's more than enough. I mean, 12 basketfuls, in fact. And I always wonder at this point, I'm like, this is a pretty incredible thing to do. Uh, Why doesn't Jesus just become a a portable baker's delight? He could help a lot of people, get a lot of attention, got a lot of followers that way. Uh, The Roman emperors, they were known for giving bread to the populace uh, to kind of win themselves great popularity because one thing that doesn't go away is that people need to eat. Indeed, uh, we're told in John, in John's version of these events, that people, when they do see this, they want to try and make him a king, or at least a king. Uh, they want to make him a king of their own making, right? They have different ideas than what Jesus has uh, for himself. But solving world hunger is not why Jesus has come. In fact, there is a greater need even than this, and that's what the 5,000, the feeding of them, points to uh, a satisfaction. Uh, is a foretaste of the true satisfaction that Jesus will give. Just as the healings, there is a restoration, but it points to an even greater restoration. And I guess the lesson here is if you have Jesus, you will not be left wanting for more. He gives fulfillment and life. And if if we ask ourselves, what is it that we need the most? What is our greatest need? I mean, these people are coming to Jesus because they have needs. What will, I guess it's a question of satisfaction. Uh, I, from time to time, enjoy uh, a Snickers bar, so the chocolate with the peanuts and the caramel. Uh, and it might, I don't know if it's still the case, but the old tagline for Snickers was that it really, really satisfies. Uh, and I have to say, I feel like it's always been a case of false advertising because I'm hungry and I eat the Snickers and I enjoy it for a moment, but it doesn't really hit the spot. Uh, it doesn't really satisfy me i mean i could have another one i don't because of the calories but i could and i don't think it would satisfy me i I think i could keep eating them and i just end up feeling quite quite sick the human heart has a drive to to be satisfied we pursue things we think pursue things things that will we think will make us happy i mean we have got the smaller things we pursue but also the bigger things but nothing seems to last you have a, a really delicious meal fills you up Next day, hungry again. You, you watch a, a beautiful movie or you read a book, so enjoyable, so satisfying, cathartic, but then that goes away. And these are just the small things. Uh, but really, any material, any transient thing, money, hobbies, achievement, we have these wants, we pursue them, we desire them. But it's kind of like a dog that's you know, chasing after a van. It doesn't know what to do when he actually catches it. It doesn't really satisfy us like the Snickers bar. And I guess, um, what do we do then if we can't find the satisfaction um, 
I guess, in material things. Because even things that are big and precious, that we value, relationships, uh, what comes of it in the end? I mean, we know that one day either it's going to be taken away from us or we're going to be taken away from it. Uh, so is it just a case of you enjoy the ride, you know, good for a moment, and then it's, then it's gone? Uh, sorry to go in such an existential direction. But I guess we, we have this question of where do we find satisfaction in a world that is fleeting, that is temporary, where one day everything will be like dust? And it comes back to what our greatest need is. Uh, I've used this quote before, I imagine, uh, because it's one of my favourite quotes, and it comes from Augustine, an old church father, who said, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you, or our hearts find no, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Which is to say, it's a matter of finding our purpose. And our purpose is to know God, not to know facts about him, but to know him as you and I can know one another in relationship. I mean, he is the one who can satisfy our our wandering souls. And Jesus, as the one giving bread from heaven, he's saying, I can, in some sense, I can give you what you need. I can fulfill you, not just with this bread here, but with something greater, something that will last to eternity. And indeed, we see the beginning of something that we imagine, well, how could that be possible? I mean, how can you imagine something that will fulfill you and satisfy forever? But Jesus says, well, I think here he's saying it's in me. Uh, And so the first thing I think we see is to draw near to the one who will satisfy um, not only ourselves now, but for all eternity. We then come to the case of walking on water. Uh, We've got a first big great act to thousands of people. And then secondly, we've got this smaller act done for a few. But I think in many ways, this second act is even more remarkable. I mean, Jesus, having done what he's intended, he sends the disciples off on a boat. He says, off you go. I'll meet you on the other side. Uh, And then he dismisses uh, the crowds. And then he goes to a solitary place in the mountains and, and he prays. I guess lest we ever kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we can go without prayer, and sometimes we we live that way even if we don't say it, Uh, always good to remember that Jesus, the Son of God, uh, the one who is God himself in perfect communion with the Father, uh, that he prays. He seeks solitude with his Father to depend on him um, as he prepares to do all that's laid out for him. And it's likely, I think, that he's preparing for what comes next. Uh, In light of John's death, um, Jesus knows his ministry is not going to end with kind of a claim and praise that you would kind of get at the Oscars, but a a bloody and and a pitiful cross. That is how he will be received by people. The disciples uh, are having a somewhat difficult night on their own. Things don't seem to be going well. It's not like the storm back in chapter 8. I don't think they're at any risk of death, but they are just tired and they are frustrated. It seems they've been paddling all night and they're making no progress. And at the very end of the night, uh, they see a figure walking towards them. Uh, and the walk, Jesus walking on water, I have to say, it is a very, it's a very strange miracle. Very strange. Because I think most of Jesus' miracles, we can kind of 
see their immediate purpose to resolve some need. It's an act of mercy, an act of compassion. Uh, But this is something else because it doesn't seem to make the disciples feel better. Uh, It actually, you know, it scares the living daylights out of them. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. What brings them fear is not the waves, but Jesus himself. Now we know that um, there was a kind of a superstitious belief held by some Jews that those who died in bodies of water uh, could kind of rise up and try and drown you at night. Um, so perhaps at the end of a long night and they're very tired, they're just spooked. I mean, but who wouldn't be spooked? Uh, I know that I, at night, uh, when I was a kid, I hear noises outside under my bed. I'm like, oh, what's that? I, even now, if I'm out at night and I hear a rustling in the bushes, I get, get a little bit edgy. So you can imagine just something that's just entirely beyond what they expected uh, would cause some reason for concern. Uh, I have talked to people who have said, I would like to meet God. And I always think, be careful what you wish for. Uh, I was once in Thailand um, and I was in a place that looked after tigers. Um, I actually sedated the tigers, but that's, that's another story. Uh, I didn't know that at the time. But I was there in the presence of these tigers, right? And this tiger was there sitting next to me. And I've got to say, a beautiful creature, uh, a powerful creature, but you don't really realise how big a tiger's head is until it's sitting up next to you or how, you know, Big, it's teeth uh, And you think, hmm, if this tiger, for some reason, decided to take a nibble out of me, there would be half an eddy left. Uh, to come to face-to-face with God is to come face-to-face, not with an old bearded man, but the master of the universe, whom creation itself bends under his authority. Indeed, I think that's why Jesus veils his true power and glory. Uh, it would be a terrifying thing. I think, the disciples to constantly be encountering that. And yet, God is in many ways a scary thing in some regards. But yet, what do we see? We see him say, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. While there is a right for fear in some regards, there is a reassurance. I am with you. Literally, Jesus says, I am. And you might know those are the exact words that God said um, to Moses from the burning bush. Jesus wants his disciples to recognize uh, and not to, I guess, underestimate him, to see him as he truly is, uh, that he is powerful beyond belief, but he is, on, he is on their side. He is for them. And so God draws near, and then you have just one of the weirdest, I don't know, one of the weirdest incidents. Peter, Peter, uh, he likes to, seems like to act, to act before thinking things through. And I have to say, if I was saw Jesus out on the water, my first instinct would not be, I can do that too. But that is what G- Peter seems to do. He seems to say, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come out to you. It's less a question of proving Jesus proving his identity and more a question of, can I join in? And remarkably, Jesus grants his request. And so Peter heads out to him, uh, the second person in history to walk on water, uh, for, at least for a moment. And yet, despite his initial confidence, he flounders. He's distracted by the wind, the external threat, and we see he begins to sink, which for him uh, would likely mean certain death if he goes under the water. Why did Peter sink? 
Well, he he took his eyes off Jesus. And perhaps the fact that he suddenly noticed the sheer impossibility of what was going on suddenly overcame all his enthusiasm. Is this real? Am I being realistic? And indeed, a fear of this kind can, I mean, often is with us, I think, a fear of death, a fear of all sorts of things outside of our control. The shadow of death indeed looms over us all. Um, I don't know whether you think I'm old or young, but I don't feel, I mean, I'm not getting younger. Uh, More and more each day, I feel the time is becoming a precious commodity. And the problem is I seem to be losing it more than getting more of it. And indeed, as much as we want to, as the West kind of pushes death out of the picture, right? You kind of compartmentalize, you have hospitals, you have nursing homes. Um, Once upon a time, you would die likely in your house. Um, When you came to church, you'd walk by a graveyard, which probably had graves of your relatives. So death was very in your face. But the problem still remains. The shadow, I think, still remains. Uh, Because we can be consumed by fear, like we can be consumed by a desire for satisfaction. And in fact, I think they're very close together. I think the reason that people pursue all sorts of things is because they know that time is limited. And so we can try and do all that we want to secure our future, but ultimately there is, well, there's nothing you can do, really. Um, There's a fundamental hopelessness, I think, on the surface when it comes to death. I mean, what are you going to do about it? And Peter's going down and cries out, Lord, save me. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He pulls him out from what would be certain death. Jesus rebukes Peter here uh, for his little faith. Why is that? Well, I don't think it was foolish for Peter to think he could walk on water because Jesus is there. Uh, Maybe a strange thing to ask, but not silly off straight away. But... And it's not a matter of how strongly he he believed in Jesus, but it was about taking his eyes off him. Uh, For indeed, Jesus is the one who can do incredible things. We've seen that in this passage. And indeed, impossible possibilities start to emerge. If Jesus can truly do these things, he can pull people even from death to life. What else can he do? And imagine as he gets back onto the boat, the rest of the disciples are like, hi, guys. You think, well, what do you do with that if you've seen this? When they had seen Jesus calm the storm previously, they were amazed and said, who is this man? And now, I don't know what else they can do. They, they, they worship him. Truly, you are the son of God. They cannot deny what they have seen, what they have witnessed. We know that in the long term, they went to their death uh, because they believed that they couldn't deny what they had seen and what they had witnessed. That this was not a man, but indeed was something much greater. He was a man, but he was indeed more than a man. He was indeed, as they they discover, he was God himself. So they're growing in their realisation. I mean, they don't quite get it yet. We see there's a bit more for them to learn, especially when it comes to what it's going to mean for God to save them, for Jesus to save them. But we see God's bigness you know, we see, well, Jesus' bigness. We see that he's more than a wise teacher. They're seeing he's more than a prophet with miraculous power, uh, more than a superhero or some kind of half deity, but very God himself. Uh, and I spoke before of impossible possibilities. I mean, this is ultimately a foretaste of what Jesus can do. He is the one 
who can stop the wind and waves. He's one who can pull from death to life. And that is what he does, isn't it? He does in doing the greatest thing of all, in sinking beneath the waves for our sake, in plunging into the depths of death, that is true death, to experience the curse of sin, to experience the judgment of God. He does that for us. And it's strange that he bears himself and bears that. He bears that himself for what we deserve from him. And it's only love, his love, that can explain that. But as we know, he did not stay. Even death could not contain him. He was resurrected um, to eternal life, and that is what he can give. He is the Son of God who saves. And so we have you know, two mighty works here, don't we, of who Jesus is and what he came to do, um, which is far more than just a story to entertain us, even more than just to kind of you know, change your life when people, people sometimes say when they watch a movie they really liked. But it's just... To, to, to absolutely and fundamentally change who we are, our existence, not just in this life, but in eternity. And we see he's the one who can give satisfaction. He's the one who can pull us out from death. And the most amazing thing of all is that he invites us to draw near to him. He invites you and I to, to draw near to him and to know him and to follow him. And so I'm going to pray that God would be helping us to do that. Perhaps if you don't, aren't sure whether you yet know Jesus, you need to wrestle with this and come to him. But if we do, um, we need to wrestle with this too, uh, that he is indeed the one who is with us, especially when we are tempted to forget, when we are tempted to fear or to look for satisfaction outside of him. Remember who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have made your Son known to us that he came to seek and to save uh, us, those who are lost. We thank you for his gracious love. We thank you that he is the bread from heaven, that he is the master of creation, that he can give us true life, true satisfaction, that he can restore us to you. We thank you that he did this not for anything on our part, but purely his own mercy and grace, and that he took all out on us all that we don't deserve, but that he is what he has won for us. And so we just pray now that as we think about these passages, that it would just be a reminder and a great encouragement to us as we seek to walk after him, that we would not stray from the things that cannot last and cannot satisfy, and that we would not fear that we would be overcome by the world, but that we would cling fast to the one who has overcome all things. In his name we pray. Amen.